I come from a family of boys. I have three sons of my own. I never even thought of having a little girl. The possibility literally never even crossed my mind. That's why when Natalie was born, it was such a surprise. In retrospect, if I had not had a little girl, I would have missed out on an awful lot of life. I love my three sons, but there is something sweet and special, splendid and wonderful about a little girl. Little girls are daring and delicate. They're charming and disarming. They're challenging too, all at the same time. Let me read you Alan Beck's description of a little girl. If you got one, better get your hanky out. Here we go. Little girls are the nicest things that happen to people. They are born with a little bit of angel shine about them, and though it wears thin sometimes, there is always enough left to lasso your heart. Even when they're sitting in the mud or crying temperamental tears or parading up the street in mom's best clothes. A little girl can be sweeter and badder, oftener than anyone else in the world. She can jitter around and stomp and make funny noises and frazzle your nerves. Yet just when you open your mouth, she stands there demure with that special look in her eyes. A little girl is innocence playing in the mud, beauty standing on its head, and motherhood dragging a doll by a foot. God borrows from many creatures to make a little girl. He uses the song of a bird, the squeal of a pig, the stubbornness of a mule, the antics of a monkey, the spryness of a grasshopper, the curiosity of a cat, the slyness of a fox, the softness of a kitten. And to top it off, he adds the mysterious mind of a woman. A little girl likes new shoes, party dresses, small animals, dolls, make-believe, ice cream, makeup, going visiting, tea parties, and one boy. She doesn't care so much for visitors, boys in general, large dogs, hand-me-downs, straight chairs, vegetables, or staying in the front yard. She is loudest when you are thinking, prettiest when she has provoked you, busiest at bedtime, quietest when you want to show her off to the grandparents, and most adorable when she absolutely must not get the best of you again. She can muss up your home, your hair, and your dignity, spend your money, your time, and your temper. Then just when your patience is ready to crack, her sunshine peeks through, and you've lost again. Yes, she is a nerve-wracking nuisance, just a noisy bundle of mischief. But when your dreams tumble down and the world is a mess, when it seems you are pretty much the fool after all, she can make you a king when she climbs on your knee and whispers, I love you best of all. And that's what this father would have missed out on had he not been blessed with a little girl. Little girls are so precious, it's a tragedy when they grow up and go astray. It saddens our heart. It moistens our eyes to see sweetness turn sour, to turn, see softness turn hard, to watch what made a little girl cute now make her cunning when sinful ambitions become armed with charm, a woman gone wrong is a pathetic figure. Hosea is the story of two little girls 
who grew up to be wicked women. Little girls who were loved and considered precious by the men in their lives. Yet they sinned against that love and they went their own way. One of those little girls was named Gomer and the other little girl was named Israel. And both are lessons for a third little girl, the church, the bride of Christ, that is you and me. Well, Hosea begins in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now notice, two nations are mentioned, Judah and Israel. By the time of the minor prophets, the once united empire of David and Solomon had divided. The ten northern tribes formed the kingdom of Israel. The two southernmost tribes took the name of the larger of the two, Judah. The Hebrew nation split north and south. Hosea ministered primarily to the northern kingdom. He dates his ministry from the reign of Jeroboam II. He served from 760 to 710 B.C. Hosea lived in the shadow of these five kings and logged 50 years of faithfulness. He was a contemporary of two other biblical writers, Micah and Isaiah. They prophesied primarily to the south while Hosea focused his efforts on Israel. All three prophets had difficulties, but it is hard to imagine a tougher road to hoe than the call of Hosea. Now realize the first Jeroboam led the northern tribes in revolt against the southern tribes and the politico-religious establishment headquartered in Jerusalem. This civil war created a divided kingdom. Rather than reconciliation, Jeroboam I warned to solidify the division. He set up a a rival religious system to eliminate any reason for the northern Hebrews to migrate to the south and to Jerusalem. Jeroboam set up a rival priesthood, different sacrifices, and different holy places. In fact, he set up two calves, golden calves. He set one up in Dan, which was in the northern reaches of the kingdom of Israel, and one in Bethel, which was in the southern reaches. Dan and Bethel became worship stations. Initially, these golden calves were to represent God, but ultimately they came to replace God. From the beginning, God considered Jeroboam's religion a form of idolatry. It was a worship of convenience. It was man-made, not God-directed. Jeroboam devised his own way to worship God rather than worship God in the way that God had desired to be worshipped. And did you know, this is the attitude among many Americans today. Folks have concocted their own eclectic religion. They've pulled from pagan beliefs, a belief here, a belief there. They've borrowed from populist wisdom to invent a worship that's convenient and that's tailor-made to their own self-interests. Reminds me of a cartoon I saw. There's a church marquee. It reads, the light, L-I-T-E, church. 24% fewer commitments home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, and 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. 
we have just three spiritual laws in an 800-year millennium. Everything you've wanted in a church and less. And God has always seen this kind of an attitude for what it is, idolatry. For 200 years, the northern kingdom continued in this sin through prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Jonah and Amos. God warned them, but the people turned a deaf ear. Israel had 19 kings, and every last one followed the sin of their wicked predecessor, Jeroboam I. Finally, God sent Hosea to forecast their judgment. God was about to wipe Israel off the map at the hands of the Assyrians. Hosea delivered the warning. He even lived to see his warnings fulfilled. In 722 B.C., the savage Assyrians invaded and sacked the capital city of Samaria. God gave the prophet Hosea a tough assignment. But what made it even more difficult was the method of communication that he was to use to deliver his message. Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. God tells Hosea to marry a harlot and to marry kids that aren't his own. Hosea the pastor marries a prostitute. I'm surprised Hollywood hasn't turned Hosea's story into a movie. Imagine the possible titles. The minister and the madam. Man of the cloth and lady of the night. The street preacher and the street walker. His light, red light. Here's my favorite. Ho Hosea. I mean, this is the kind of show that networks say for Sweeps Week. Here's a drama that would jack up the ratings. And yet realize this wasn't pretend. This was real life. It comes with real emotions. What a shock it was to Hosea's spiritual and moral sensibilities to be called by God to marry a prostitute. I mean, the law of God required prostitutes to be stoned, not courted. What was God doing? I'm sure Hosea thought, this is my ministry. I mean, what church wants a pastor with a prostitute for a wife? Le a leprosy would have done more damage to Hosea's ministry, or couldn't have done more damage to it. All Hosea wanted for himself was a happy home, a good woman to raise his kids, a wife who shared his love for God. Instead, he has to share her shame. Hosea must have thought it was all just a, a trick. Remember, though, throughout the Old Testament, when the people refused to hear God's straightforward truth, you remember the prophets would often come and they would paint a picture with a parable or with a skit. In fact, later, chapter 12, verse 10, God tells Hosea, I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets, and he had. You remember Isaiah declared the bare facts about Judah's sin by walking naked among them. 
Jeremiah showed the nation that they were about to be grounded by God when he buried a sash underground next to the Euphrates River. Ezekiel declared that the city of Jerusalem would be invaded by digging a hole in the wall of his house and seemingly escaping for work every morning. I mean, all the prophets would use these different pictures from time to time to get their message across. And here, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. You see, for too long, Israel was supposed to be God's wife. And yet the nation had followed idols. They had broken their vow to God. They had been unfaithful. Here God wants Hosea to both feel and to reveal this message to his people. Hosea's home was to be a reflection of the house of Israel. You know, being a disciple of Jesus would be easy if our job were just to declare God's truth. But proclaiming, revealing is only part of our job description. As important as revealing a truth is us feeling that truth. This is the kind of fellowship that God desires with his servants, with what he desires with you and me. He brings us into his heart. He allows us to feel what he feels. As he said to the Philippians, that I may know, as Paul said to the Philippians, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He even knew the power that belonged to Christ. He knew the sufferings as well. The deepest intimacy with God is sharing in his heartaches, not just his triumphs. God's command to Hosea was strange. It was unsavory. It was difficult. Yet in verse 3, we're told that he obeyed. So he went and took Gomer, the son of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore, bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now God names the couple's first child Jezreel, a famous valley. This was the site where the descendants of the wicked king Ahab were slaughtered by the Jewish warrior Jehu. This new king Jehu brought judgment on the house of Ahab. With his hands, Jehu obeyed God, but apparently in his heart he went too far. Jehu grew bloodthirsty. The best we can tell, this man did the will of God while ignoring the love of God, which is always a big mistake. Jeroboam II, the king at the time of Hosea, was a descendant of Jehu. And here, Hosea's son is a warning that God is going to bring judgment on Jeroboam, the house of Jehu, and really all of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Where Jehu got his start, this will be where the house of Jehu ends. And Hosea is actually referring to two events. In 722 B.C., Assyria's general, Shalmanazir, invaded and defeated Israel. It was the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy. But there's also a long range, future fulfillment. Hosea is also speaking of the end times and a final battle that occurs in the valley of Jezreel. And you know it well, for that valley has another name. It's also called the Valley of Armageddon, where the final battle will take place. 
Now, the word Jezreel, it means to scatter. It's the Hebrew word for a backhanded toss, the kind of toss you'd use to throw rice on a newly wedded couple or a handful of confetti up into the sky. Hosea is saying that Israel will one day be scattered. This did happen in 722 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians scattered the northern kingdom across the lands, all across the Mediterranean world. It happened again in 70 A.D. when the Romans invaded Israel. And for the last 1,900 years, the Hebrew people have been scattered to the ends of the earth. In fact, in the last days, a last great dispersion will occur. Israel will again be scattered across the globe. Notice verse 6. And she, that is Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel but I will utterly take them away. Now realize, the story of Hosea plays a divine name game. You've heard the phrase, what's in a name? Well, in the book of Hosea, the answer is plenty. Once I actually heard of a doctor whose last name was Hurt. I mean, Dr. Hurt. I mean, who in their right mind would want to go to Dr. Hurt? Couldn't have been good for business. As a matter of fact, here's a list of other real names that complement the holder's occupation. Mike Sellers is a business, a distribution manager for a business. Ralph Bible is a minister. One Mr. Plank is a carpenter. Mr. Hand is a physical therapist. Mike Cash works in finance. Richard Pye is a chef. I like this one. Mr. Hookham is a director of advertising. William Love is a cardiologist. He works on hearts. There's a doctor who remains, removes dead tissue from wounds. His name is Dr. Skinner. And of course, the dentist, Dr. Moeller, of course. Well, in Hosea, God uses names of his kids, the names of Hosea and Gomer's children, to convey prophetic messages to his people. Darnold Gray Barnhouse, he wrote this, Never has so much been said in so few words. Hosea and Gomer, they have a second child, a daughter. She gets the name Loruhama, which means unpitied. And there comes a time when God will withdraw his pity or his mercy from a people. Before the flood, God told Noah, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. In other words, God's patience has limits. When the Jews pleaded with Pilate to let Christ's blood be upon their hands and their children's hands, they didn't know what they were asking. For that moment became a turning point in their history. God withdrew his pity. And for the last 1980 years, Israel has received no mercy. Names like Auschwitz, Dachau, Belgen-Burson. These names send cold shivers up and down our spine as we think back to the concentration camps. Through the centuries, the judgment on the Jews has been pitiless. 
As one Jewish historian facetiously prayed, Lord, thank you for choosing us as your chosen people, but how about choosing someone else for a while? Verse 7 tells us, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horsemen or horses. The southern kingdom of Judah was spared. The northern kingdom was judged by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom was saved from the Assyrian invasion. But their deliverance didn't come by bow or by sword or by cavalry or by battle. Divine intervention won the day. You remember the story. According to 2 Kings 19, an angel of the Lord came in the middle of the night and in that single night slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. The enemy's remaining troops retreated to Nineveh and God gave Judah another 120 years to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. He says, now when she had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. At the time, Hebrew moms would breastfeed their babies up to two to three years. It was a couple of years later that she bore a second son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. This third child is named Lo-Ami, or not my people. If you put it in the singular, the name means not my child. And the implication is that at this point, Hosea began to realize that this child was not his, that this child was now the fruit of Gomer's renewed harlotry, and that this was not the prophet's legitimate son. He named him Lo-Ami, or not my child. What a strong warning this was to Israel, that they would no longer be God's people. When Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they were cut from the team. They were fired. They were sent home without pay. They were suspended by God. The Bible tells us that God temporarily withdrew Israel's favored nation status. Soon after their rejection of their promised Savior, in 70 AD, the Jews were scattered. And for two millennium, they have been unpitied. Today, the Jews are not God's people. But, verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. In other words, he won't give up on them. They'll be multiplied, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. In essence, God placed the Hebrews on the injured reserve. In New Testament times, even today, the church has filled their spot on the roster. But here we're told that the Jews will get back in the game at the end. You see, has God abandoned the Jews forever? No way, Jose. Uh. The Jews will be regathered to their land. They will be reestablished as a nation. They will be reintroduced to their Messiah. This is the new covenant that God has promised. In the end, the Jews will be united under one head. That is Jesus. Mercy will once again be shown to the Jews. 
These awful prophetic names that Hosea gave to his kids will one day be given a new twist. In the same place that Israel was named Lo Ruhama or unpitied, the negative prefix Lo will be dropped. They'll just be Ruhama or pitied. They'll receive mercy. Likewise, Lo Ami or not my people will be changed to Ami or simply my people. And Jezreel or scattered will be gathered together as one nation. In the very same land where the nation was cursed, the nation will one day be blessed. You know, Paul speaks of this day in Romans 11, verse 26, that at the end of time, he says, all Israel will be saved. When Jesus returns, all Jews alive at the time will embrace him. They'll all become Jews for Jesus. The people who rejected him will be reinstated. Which brings us to chapter 2, verse 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are the children of harlotry. With the birth of Hosea's last son, Lo-Ami, it was apparent that Gomer had been going out on him. She had reverted back to her harlotry. Hosea sends his children to talk to Gomer into coming back. If Gomer doesn't return, Hosea is going to divorce her. He's going to publicly disgrace her. He's going to cut her off. He tells his kids to tell her that. He's even going to make life hard on his own children. She had better return. This was his message to his estranged wife. If Hosea sounds harsh, understand it's his hurt that's speaking. Nothing upsets. Nothing breaks the heart. Nothing uh, angers a person as much as discovering that their spouse has been guilty of infidelity. It's a betrayal of trust. It's one of the worst pains. People who've endured it have told me they, they, they wish that they were a widow or a widower. It would be easier to handle than to go through this kind of betrayal. As one woman wrote, Dear Abby, she said, I was 20 and he was 26. We had been married two years and I hadn't dreamed he could be unfaithful. The awful truth was brought home to me when a young widow from a neighboring farm came to tell me she was carrying my husband's child. My world collapsed. I wanted to die. I fought the urge to kill her and him. Defiled, degraded, spit in the face, stabbed in the back, betrayed and bloodied. These are the feelings caused by infidelity, by unfaithfulness to our marriage vows. Years ago, a woman in Rio de Janeiro discovered that her lover had been cheating on her. The next time he went to kiss her, the woman bit off his tongue. The wounded woman then swallowed, the the woman who had bit bit off the guy's tongue then swallowed it so that it couldn't be reattached. 
The man, who later was unable to talk, wrote his feelings on a piece of paper. He said, now, that was a real Judas kiss. These kinds of stories, though, they illustrate the rage, the pain, the hurt, the agony that's caused by the violation of one's vows. You see, Hosea was hurting. He was hurting. He was angry. He was upset. And so was God. Israel did to God what Hosea, what Gomer had done to Hosea. Understand this. God has emotions too. He does. It is an amazing truth to realize that you, that tiny, piney, puny you, you have the power to injure the Almighty God. Do you realize that? Real love always involves vulnerability. And God, in pouring out His love to us, makes Himself vulnerable to our rejection. This is why when you cling to other possessions and pleasures that displease God and pursuits that take your focus off God, it hurts Him. It breaks His heart. Fall in love with rival affections and it breaks God's heart. Whenever I conduct a wedding ceremony, I tell the bride and groom, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. He knows better. But He does expect you to be faithful. None of us are perfect. God knows there'll be times when we'll fail. But God does expect us to be faithful. To keep our hearts turned to Him. To love Him with all we've got. To keep Him at the center of who we are. Understand, God has feelings too. You need to pay attention to God's feelings. And then verse 5 tells us, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. You know, sadly, Gomer swapped the cul-de-sac for the fast lane. A husband and three kids were boring, so Gomer went whoring. Hosea brought home a pastor's salary. So Gomer decided to supplement it by pimping herself out. Tragically, her own dignity, her commitments, her kids, her spouse, even the people, even her God didn't factor into her thoughts. Shazam! This Gomer was a sellout. <laughs> Some of you got it. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Now here's the tragedy. Hosea provided for Gomer's every material need, but she had given credit to her lovers. She had forgotten who was paying the bills. And Israel likewise had forgotten the source of her bounty and her blessings. Even today, the modern Israelis are inclined to take credit for their own successes. Rather than praise God for their survival, they credit the indomitable human spirit, whatever that is. Rather than thank God for their achievements, it's Jewish ingenuity. Rather than point to the hand of God for their military triumphs, they praise their own courage and firepower. 
Let you and I be on guard against taking credit for successes that in reality flow from the hand of God. Verse 6 tells us, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Notice how Hosea and God handle their wayward brides. They let them go. They turn them loose. Hosea lets the go-go girl go. He doesn't chase after Gomer. He doesn't beg her to stay. He's willing to let her go and allow her to taste the consequences of her sin. See, if you try to hold on to a rebellious heart, it often bucks even harder. But if you let it go, and you let it drink of the natural consequences of the path it's chosen, often it realizes how good it had it and comes running back. This is good advice for handling a spouse who's been unfaithful or a grown child who's been rebelling or even a church member who's disgruntled and embittered. When you try to stand in that person's way, we keep God from getting their attention and teaching them the lessons they ultimately need to know. The sooner we let them go, the sooner we just might get them back. When I was a young tyke, I still remember this, I decided that my dad was just too mean. He was just the meanest man in the world. And I decided I was going to run away from home. If I remember correctly, Dad helped me pack my bag. Mom even made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for the trip. I think I made it halfway down the street before I realized that life in my father's house wasn't so bad after all. And this is what Gomer and Israel needed to learn. Boy, this is also a lesson for us, isn't it? Backslide from God, walk away. God's not going to chase you down. He hedges your way with thorns. In essence, He creates obstacles for you. He makes your way hard. He lets you feel lost. You cannot find your path. But He does it all to bring you to your senses. God doesn't give up on you, but He's patient. He lets you learn the hard way. He knows sometimes we don't learn to appreciate what we have until it's been taken away. And then in verse 9, God speaks, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Since Israel had not given God credit for her blessings, since she was not grateful, God was going to take those blessings back. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, There are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me 
she forgot, says the Lord. Wow, can you just hear the heartbreak? She had her parties, man. You know, she, she got dressed up for these false gods. She celebrated these pagan festivals. She forgot me. God describes his treatment of his wayward wife, Israel. She had boasted that her bounty was due to other lovers, the false gods that she served. What painful words the Lord speaks. But me, she forgot. You know, the story of Hosea teaches us that gratitude is the first step toward worship. Gratitude is the first step toward worship. But ingratitude is the first step toward idolatry. A heart that's full of thanks is ready to express it, but a heart that's been lulled into taking God's grace for granted is slowly pulling away from God. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. This too is a painful cry. Hosea really loved Gomer despite her harlotries. And God loves us despite our unfaithfulness. This is what makes sin so sinister. It would be one thing if sin were merely turning from God's truth. But it's much more than that. It's spurning God's love. As the old saying goes, sin is not just breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. God's love makes His feelings vulnerable to our decisions. That's why we should never trifle with or jilt that love. Verse 15, I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. God is saying that once his people have been broken and humbled, then he'll allure her. He'll woo her back with his love. But God only courts a contrite heart. You remember Psalm 34, verse 18. It declares, the Lord is near to those who have what? Who have a broken heart. And he says such as has a contrite spirit. God sings his song, but to the ears that listen. God plants his kisses, but on the back of the neck that's bowed. God strokes the cheeks that are wet with tears. It's when I come broken and contrite that God reaches down and comforts me and loves me and and lures me back. He heals a broken heart when we give him all the pieces. And notice Hosea predicts that the valley of Achor will be a door of hope to Israel. Achor means trouble. Literally, the valley of trouble will become a door of hope. God uses Israel's hardships to draw her back. Innocence and freshness will be restored to this hardened harlot. Israel will again be like a bubbly little girl. And so can we, if we let our troubles soften our hearts, not harden our hearts. Humility becomes our ally. Israel had lost its first love, but through troublesome times still ahead, God will win her back. You know, these verses also apply to the end times. When the Antichrist violates his covenant and attacks the Jews... As Jesus told us in Matthew 24, the Jews will flee to the wilderness. Isaiah 14 identifies their three-and-a-half-year hideout as the rock city of Petra. 
in just a few weeks, those that are going to Israel, we're going to be going to Petra. And Hosea here may be referring to this last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation when he says that it's in the wilderness that God will begin to woo Israel back to Himself with His love. And then verse 16 tells us, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. God says to His people that you'll call me Ishi or husband rather than Baali or master. You know, God is our Lord. He's our master. We take orders from Him, no doubt about it. We're servants of God. We're His slaves in essence. But hear me carefully. The priority of our relationship with God is not just serving Him. It's knowing Him and it's loving Him. See, God says that the day is coming when you won't call me master, but you'll call me husband. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15? He said, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Isn't that beautiful? In Christ, God wants a personal, heartfelt relationship with us. It's easy to fall into the trap of serving Jesus without loving him. Performance without passion. Devotion without emotion. Busyness, but without a beating heart. He wants to remind us that He's our husband, not just our Lord. And then verse 17, where I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, or the false gods, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth, to make them lie down safely. Apparently at the time, Israel had become associated with her idols or the Baals. But God is going to remove that association. Peace will come when He shatters the bow and sword of battle. And this is a commentary on current events in Israel. True peace is going to come to Israel when God shatters the sword and the bow, not when men lay them down. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Betroth in these verses means to woo or to court or to romance. We're told that in the end, God will romance Israel, and the two will live forever in a loving, faithful relationship. This was the ultimate aim for Hosea and Gomer. Now verse 21 tells us, It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Here again, we should ask ourselves the question, what's in a name? Again, Hosea, he he draws upon the names of his three kids to teach lessons. Which reminds me of the newspaper ad. Lost dog, walks on three legs, is missing an eye, has a gnarled left ear, a broken tail, several scars. 
goes by the name Lucky. Some names just don't fit the person who has them. But not so with Hosea's three children. Remember the name Jezreel means scattered. It's that backhanded toss. But here it's given a different twist. That backhanded flip that scatters the confetti into the wind is the same wrist action that a farmer uses to sow seed. Thus, what's meant to scatter can also mean to plant. Despite their diaspora, despite their dispersion around the globe for the last two millenniums, God has promised to plant the Jews back in their land. Today in Israel, we're witnessing the beginning of what Hosea predicted. And then he says, I will have mercy. Lo Ruhama meant unpitied. Yet God is going to change that. He's going to have mercy on this nation that had not obtained mercy. And then Hosea's third child, Lo Ami, or you are not my people. In the last days, God is going to say, you are my people. In the end, God will restore Israel both with his mercy and their status as his favored people. This whole ordeal was not easy for Hosea. He let go, but he never gave up. He kept hoping and praying and longing for Gomer's return. And his faith was rewarded. For one day he hears that his wife is at the slave market. She's being auctioned off by her pimp. Used and abused, she's being sold on the auction block like some cheap commodity. He rushes in. He buys her back. He brings her home. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll tackle the rest of the story next week.